Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Kyle Thompson. Thank you all for being here to worship God, whether you're in person or watching online, as we continue in our series about being happy, which uh, Chris and Pastor Lindsay just talked about. Uh, we've been looking at this over the past couple of uh, weeks, uh, just thinking about how to be happy in 2022 and 2020 and 2021 are pretty challenging. So what does it look like to do that? And just as a reminder, some things that we've kind of covered in the series, uh, we're looking at it from a theological and a biblical standpoint. What does God teach us about being happy? As well as a scientific standpoint. And we've been uh, having some good overlap in that, which has kind of been refreshing and cool to see. And we're talking about how to be happy in our lives and with our lives. So we can feel happy as we're living our lives, and we can also be happy with the direction that our lives are moving. We also talked about sometimes you're just not going to feel happy. We have times in life where we're going to feel sad, and sometimes we're going to feel angry, sometimes anxious. And if you're not happy all the time, then there's nothing wrong with you. We just experience a different group of emotions being human beings. Uh, been asking you to kind of track your happiness on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being not happy at all, intend being completely happy once a day, sitting down, writing in a journal, what's your number? And look at what it was the day before, or the week before, and if it moved up, why did it move up? If it moved down, why did it move down? So hopefully by the end of the series, we will have seen some overall movement forward, and we can kind of isolate what it is that helps us to feel happy in our lives. And so again, biblically, theologically, we're looking at the Bible, what God teaches us there, and scientifically, we've been leaning a lot on uh, Professor uh, Lori Santos from Yale University, uh, who has a podcast and a class. Uh, it's the most popular class in Yale's history. She's taught over almost 4 million people worldwide. You can take the class for free online about what science teaches us about being happy. So that's where we have come from, and so we'll, we'll dive right in today. And I want to introduce you to uh, a cosmonaut, Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, who in 1961 became the first human being to go into outer space. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And now we hear about people going to space all the time with uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. When you've got a few million dollars, you can get on a rocket and go yourselves now. Uh, but in 1961, it just had not been done. And uh, when Yuri got back from doing his first trip to outer space, they interviewed him in this famous interview, and they said, were you scared at all? Were you nervous? And he said, no, not at all. And you can look at my vital signs. They were monitored the whole way, didn't have any problem with it. And you're like, well, how is that possible when you're launching into outer space? Because in 1961, that was a pretty big deal kind of like putting you in a tin can and strapping you to a big rocket full of materials of kerosene and liquid oxygen that could blow up at any second. In fact, all of the trials that were done before he was sent into space by the Russian space group ended tragically, right? Before he went up into space, they sent dogs up into space. And so the first dog that they sent up into space died when he came back in reentry, burned up, right? That's just sad. Then they sent a couple dogs up the next time, uh, and they died in an explosion in, in the rocket. Third time they sent dogs up, the thing went up well, was coming down well, but the capsule was going to land somewhere that wasn't in Russia, and so they didn't want the technology falling into other hands, and so they blew, blew it up and killed those poor dogs. Uh, and then the last dog that they sent up, uh, up in space fine, coming back in the atmosphere, but the parachute on the capsule didn't open, and so crashed and died. So... That's what he had as a track record. But he was still willing to get into that rocket. How many of us would get into that rocket and say, I'm not scared at all. You can check my vital signs, right? None of us probably, right? So what did he do? 
right? How did he have that courage? And, and how have cosmonauts and astronauts who have followed him gone up into outer space, launched in outer space, risking their lives, even though technology's gotten better? Still a scary thing. How do they face the pressure to do something like that? Well, in our lives, we're probably not going to launch off into a rocket anytime soon. You might, you know, might get on one of those Amazon or uh, Tesla kind of rockets at some point. But I, I do think that all of us do launch into things in our lives that take us out of our comfort zones, right? It could be an illness. It could be a new job. It could be a new project at work. It could be a new class at school. It could be a new team that we're on. Some of us are getting married. Some of us are having children. Some of us are having grandchildren. Like, we're always launching into something new, that probably is great, but also brings stress and some anxiety. We're not sure how to deal with that. And so is there anything that we can learn from this cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, and these other astronauts and cosmonauts who followed in his wake? Because the scientists have studied this, and they found out there's some commonalities that, that stretched across not just going into outer space, but life in general. And basically it boils down to these people have particip participated in rituals, Everyday rituals that they do, routines that they do that help them psychologically deal with some stressful and also exciting situations. So could that be something that we could take advantage of as well as we face stressful and challenging and, and fun opportunities in our own lives? Let's look at some of the science, which is going to seem not like science. It's going to seem more like superstition and silliness. And then what does the Bible say about all of that? Because it it's, it's might butt some heads today. So let's see what happens. So anyway, let's go back to the cosmonauts who followed Yuri Gagarin's example. Uh, to this day, most of the Russian cosmonauts still do the very same things that Yuri did when he prepared to go into outer space. For example, two weeks before they have the flight all of the cosmonauts go to Yuri's old office. They've kind of uh, kept that up and, and, and how it used to look like. So they go and they make this pilgrimage to his office and they plant a tree. Why did they do that? Because that's exactly what he did back in 1961 before he went into space, right? So they do this and it, it has a calming effect on them, right? Two days before they launch into outer space, they go and they get a haircut. Why do they do that? Simple everyday thing, calms them down because Yuri got a haircut two days before he launched into outer space. The day of the mission, they do something that Yuri also did, what the room that they're staying in where they, they're sequestered, they autograph the door, they write their name on the door because that's what Yuri did. And it calms them down to be able to go and have the faith that they're going to be able to make this mission because he did it, we do it, we're going to be fine. Right? There's one more thing that's probably the most popular, but it's the most disgusting habit that they do. They also even do it here in America. They, they're in their spacesuits, their million-dollar spacesuits or whatever. They're in the bus that's taking them out to the space shuttle or space rocket. They stop on the tarmac, and they get out, and they pee on the bus tire right? in their million-dollar spacesuit. It's disgusting, right? But they do it, and they do it, and that's probably a risk, right? You got all these straps, and you just tested and all this stuff, right? Why would they do that? In America, astronauts have traditions as well. Uh, most of the astronauts eat a big meal right before they fly of steak and eggs, not because Yuri did it, but because Alan Shepard did it. Y'all know who Alan Shepard is? He's one of the astronauts who first landed on the moon uh, from America. And so he did it. Probably not the best idea when you're getting ready to go into a capsule where the G-forces are going to just make you want to vomit anyway, but to have all that food in your stomach. But they do it because Alan Shepard did it, and it was successful to get him 
to the moon, right? And um, another habit that or ritual that we have as American astronauts is before the astronauts come out of the place where they suit up into their suits, they play hands of poker until they beat the commander of the mission. He has to lose so that he gets all of his quote-unquote bad luck out, right? So they're not leaving until they beat the commander in poker so they can get on the ship and fly safely into outer space, right? Why would NASA, and NASA's equivalent in Russia, right, the most scientific people in the history of the world, literally rocket scientists who believe in science and not superstition, why would they do things like this? Pee on a tire and, and eat steak and eggs and, and, and go plant a tree, right? Why do they do these superstitious things? Because playing poker has nothing to do with flying into outer space, right? The rocket's going to be the rocket, right? Why do they do this? Right? They've studied this. They, they've studied this. There's a, there's a professor at Northeastern University, and he said people do rituals all the time for a couple of reasons. One is it gives them a sense of control, right? It feels like I can do something, feel like I have some control over this crazy situation that I find myself in. And because of that, then it gives them a calming presence. It's a psychological thing. Again, right, playing poker has nothing to do with flying in outer space. Right? But psychologically, going through this ritual or this routine calms them down, gives them a sense of control, and they're less stressed, more happy, and they're able to perform in what they do. Very interesting to think about this. So some Harvard Business School professors have studied this as well on people who are not astronauts on people who play sports or who just do everyday life activities, people who sing songs, and they found out similar things. So there's a lot of pressure when we have to perform something, to do something big, right? So these Harvard Business School professors studied all these people, and one of them is Serena Williams. You know Serena Williams, right? Great tennis player, one of the greatest tennis players in the history of the world. Before she does her first serve, she bounces a tennis ball five times, exactly five times, not six, not four, five times. So at her second serve, she bounces the ball two times, right? That is her ritual. That's her routine to go out and to play winning tennis. All right? She can't do it if she doesn't do her five and do her two bounces. Right? So that's, that's Serena Williams. Wade Boggs used to play third base for the Boston Red Sox. He could not play a Red Sox game unless he ate a whole chicken the day before the game, right? the day of the game, actually. Right? I don't know how you get a whole chicken go out and play a baseball game, but he did. And that's what he did, right? So Beyonce, the singer, the dancer, she goes through a, a, a routine every time before she goes out on a show. She listens to the very same song list. She's got a playlist of some certain songs. She has to listen to all those songs. She has an individual prayer with every member of her band. She does the same stretching routine that she does every time, and she spends one hour in meditation before she goes out and does her thing, right? She has to do all of that to feel confident that she can go out and do what she does, right? Even in my own life, right, when I'm writing a sermon, when I'm, I'm going over my sermon, I have a routine, right? I'm an obsessive compulsive person. I have to write it on a certain kind of paper, right? I do it in a certain place, and then I, I go through it in a certain way, right? Just this routine that helps me to be able to come up here and, and talk to people. And so I, it's an everyday kind of thing that I think all of us might be experiencing in our lives as we think about this. Uh, those Harvard business professors, they studied some other, other folks, just regular folks like you and me, 
uh, and they, they studied them and wanted to see how much a ritual could help somebody perform in a, in a difficult circumstance. And so they got a whole group of people, and this is what they had to do. They had to sing the song, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Do you guys know that song, Don't Stop Believing? It's a hard song to sing, a lot of different parts in that. Uh, and they had to sing that, and it's on a scale of 0 to 100. They, they ranked them based on how well they sang it, how they could hit the, the parts and all that kind of Cole would nail that, right? I would kill it if I was up here singing that, right? Uh, and they also had to do it in front of a very stern-looking judge who was judging everything that they did, writing down what they did. So they took half the people, and they didn't do anything, any ritual thing. They went through it. They sang the song. And they took the other half, and they made up a ritual where they had them all sit down. They said, write out how you're feeling right now on a piece of paper. Pour some salt on that. Count out loud to five. Crumple it up and throw it in the trash, right? Absolutely meaningless stuff, just meaningless stuff. And this is what they found out. When they tested all those people to sing the song, right, those who did the ritual on average performed better than those who didn't, right? In fact, those who didn't scored on average a 66 out of 100, hard song to sing. Those who did the ritual scored a 78 out of 100, right? And they also asked them to rank their stress when they were doing it, right? The people without the ritual said, on a scale of 0 to 7, how stressed were you? The ones who did not do the ritual said we were at a 6. The ones who did the ritual were lower at a 4. Now, it doesn't mean that those, right, who scored higher are better singers. It just means that they are more relaxed, and more calm and prepared. It's just a made-up ritual, right? Write your feelings out, pour some salt. There's no power in that. It's just silly, but it worked. They also did this with a group of people who were trying to lose weight. And so they were trying to cut out 10% of their calorie, caloric intake. And so they, they got a group, they split them in half, these Harvard Business School professors, and half of them did not do a ritual. The other half, they made up another ritual. They said, Cut up all your food on your plate in little bitty pieces, put them in symmetrical order, and then mash down on them with your fork five times, right? That's the ritual. The ones who did the ritual lost 200 more calories than the ones who did not on average. It's weird, right? It's just, it's weird. It sounds superstitious. It sounds silly, right? A routine, like, was it matter if you play poker? Was it matter if you mash down with your fork, right? Because there's probably tennis players that don't bounce the ball like Serena does. They're probably astronauts who just show up and they go into outer space, right? But for some reason, psychologically, these rituals help people. And so that same scientist guy up at uh, Northeastern University who studies religion and ritual and all that kind of stuff, he says that if you believe that what you're doing will help you, it will. If you believe that playing poker is going to help you, it's going to have a calming effect on you. And he said it's kind of like the placebo effect. You guys know what that is? It's like where they're doing a medical study and they give one group real medicine and they give the other group medicine that's not real. But the people who take the medicine that's not real, if they believe that it's real, their bodies do better, right? Because it's the brain working, right? So these rituals tap into that, like that that just, that, that power, I guess, you know, you believe it, it's going to have a positive effect, right? And so it can mean absolutely nothing, right? Poker has nothing to do with flying a spaceship, right? But if you believe it, it helps calm you down. You feel like you have control, and you're going to perform okay, right? It's interesting to think about, right? And so Dr. Lori Santos says you might want to think about creating rituals or routines 
in your life. So not sure if you want to do that or not, but just something to think about. But now here's where we get to the, the biblical stuff and the theology because people who follow God, people who are religious, people who follow Jesus, right? if you look over our history, it's full of ritual. It's full of routine. It's full of things that we do to try to connect to God. And it helps us understand birth, why we exist. It helps us deal with death, right? We have funerals. We have rituals that we go through. When we have marriage, right, we go through ritual and a ceremony and all that stuff. When we have children, uh, we have rituals that we do with kids, and we have confirmation coming of age, right? If you look in the Old Testament, there's all kinds of rituals. Like they were pouring out water and grain and blood all over the place, right? And they have 613 commands, wear this, don't wear that, like all these things that we have to do. Now in the New Testament, we get freed up from a lot of that stuff, but there's still stuff in the New Testament that we do that's ritual or routine, right? We worship together. We worship together once a week, right? We're coming here together once a week. We're going to do it at 10 o'clock next week, right? We do that together. We we pray, we talk to God, we listen to God, we read the Bible, we study the Bible, right? we do that ritually, we do that in a routine. Uh, and so we, we do these things that help us when we deal with big questions in life and also just everyday stuff, right? Uh, pray about school, pray about going to work today, pray for someone who's sick, right? So, but I think there's a big difference between what the scientists were studying, where you pretty much create your own ritual, right? You give it whatever meaning you want, the whole poker playing thing, the, you know, uh, bouncing the ball, that kind of stuff. Well, we do it, though, as followers of Jesus. What's different is we believe that we're really tapping into a real power, and that's God who's real, right? The power's not in the ritual. The power's in Jesus, right? A ritual kind of opens the door to God's power. This is the way John Wesley describes it, the founder of the Methodist Church. He, he calls it a means of grace, right? We're not just making stuff up. It's not the placebo effect. If you believe it, it's going to help you, right? We're really trying to open ourselves to the power of a real God. We're not in control. God's in control, but God gives us these gifts to open ourselves to him, right? God's appointed instruments, right? Reading scripture, worshiping, receiving Holy Communion, things like that, praying, right? God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit, right? God, the one with the power, enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. So the means of grace, the rituals that we follow as Christians, followers of Jesus, nothing powerful in themselves, but they point to the real power, and that's God, right? It's like a door. It's like opening a door to access God. Right? Now, the challenge in the church sometimes becomes, sometimes we elevate the ritual over God, and we begin to worship the ritual. Like, we're having Holy Communion today. Some people will say we're not doing it correctly because the bread's not right, or we're not using wine, right? And so sometimes we elevate the ritual over what it's meant to be, and that's a connection to God. And that's how church people get in trouble. And we start fighting with each other, and we lose the whole point of the meaning is that this is a symbol, it's a tool, it's a doorway to open us to God, right? But again, for followers of Jesus, we're not just making stuff up. It's not a placebo effect. We're really trying to open ourselves to the power of God. So let me give you an example of this. This is coming from the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He was in the first century pastor, started most of the churches in the Mediterranean world. 
He wrote a lot of letters to them, makes up the, the New Testament. This is what he's writing to the church in Corinth, to the Corinthians, uh, about what has become one of our most very sacred rituals, one of the things that we do to open ourselves up to God called Holy Communion. Okay, and so this is what Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians. For I received from the Lord, from Jesus himself, what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this. right? Do this in remembrance of me. I want you to reenact this. Do this in remembrance of me. Open yourself to this good news. Let's keep going. All right. In the same way, after supper, we took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Paul's saying one doorway that God's given us to open ourselves is remembering the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. When he took bread and said, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is shed for you, right? Jesus died on the cross and he came back to life to help us deal with some very real problems in our life, right? We do things that are wrong. And because we do that, we experience guilt and shame and we just feel terrible. And Jesus said, that's not why I created you. I don't like what you've done, but I'm ready to forgive you. I'm, I, I'm ready to forgive you so much. I died for you on the cross and I came back to life so that you can be forgiven. So you can have joy and peace, you can live a life that is full, and you can live life forever in the kingdom of heaven. Right? The power is not in the ritual, but the ritual points us to the power that's in Jesus, and we can receive that. Right? So what's the point today? What's the big idea as we think about everyday ritualistic activities, kind of like playing poker before you fly into outer space, or bouncing a tennis ball five times before you do a serve two? Wow, we're talking about connecting to the power of God in our lives. What, what's the takeaway? This is what I think it is, right? Rituals can be beneficial, right? Rituals can absolutely be beneficial. For Serena Williams, she bounces the ball. It works for her, right? For the astronauts, they play poker. It works for them. But here's, here's the difference. Rituals can be beneficial, especially when they're biblical, right? When we want to get in touch with God. We want to connect ourselves to God. When we open ourselves to God, right, great things can happen. Right, when we, we look at that New Testament, we see ways that we can open ourselves to God. Right? Rituals can be beneficial, especially when they're biblical, because we're talking about real power versus just made-up stuff. Right? So that's something. And so what I'd like to invite you to do today, right, an action step, uh, would be to experience right, Holy Communion, to receive Holy Communion right now. Right? Let's, let's, let's do this together as a way of saying to God, we love and we appreciate you, and we want to open ourselves to your, your, your forgiveness and your grace, and we want you to be a part of our lives. So if you're here, I invite you to get out the packet that you have. If you're watching online, if you want to grab something to eat or drink uh, that we talked about, uh, we're going we're gonna to go through this ritual, which we call a sacrament, which means it's an outward visible sign, right? We have the bread, we've got the, the juice. It's an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual grace, something that God does for us inside. He forgives us. He wipes away our guilt and shame, right? He washes us and makes us clean. So we're going to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit today and invite Jesus into our lives. You don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to be a baptized Christian. This is God's gift, God's doorway to him that we can all step through. And so today we do remember that Jesus was with his disciples 
He took a loaf of bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take and eat, this is my body, which is given for you. As often as you do this, remember me. And then he took a cup of wine and said, take and drink, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray about that together. Gracious and ever-loving God, we thank you for dying on a cross for us and for coming back to life. We thank you, God, that that's not a myth. It's not make-believe. It, it happened. And your power was very clearly displayed, not just in the death, Lord, but in the resurrection. And that you came back to life. You show us that you're ready to forgive us, that our guilt and shame, they can't bind us anymore, that you're ready to forgive us when we, when we confess to you and we turn away from our wrongdoing and invite you to forgive us, God. And not only that, but you come and you give us joy and you give us peace and you... You take residence inside of us, Lord. Your Holy Spirit is with us, and you, you give us confidence to face the world, Lord, and, and we can live a life that is full and one that is forever. And God, for those of us that have been carrying around a lot of guilt and shame, we, just, we don't feel happy about that at all, God, but we are happy to know that we can release that to you right here and right now. So we ask, God, that you, you take whatever that we have to eat and make it symbolically your body broken for us. Whatever we have to drink to make it symbolically the blood that you shed for us. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Please now hear just our silent confessions to you, God, of the things that we've done wrong that we want to leave behind. And we, we turn them over to you, God. Hear our silent confession now. God, we hear you saying, in the name of Christ, we are forgiven. And for that, we're grateful. Thank you for this sacrament. Thank you for this ritual, God, that opens a door to you. Help us to step through and say, yes, God, I want you to be the center of my life. In Christ's holy name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you'd like to step through that door to encounter the living God, I invite you to take whatever you have to eat right now and Know that this is symbolically the body of Christ broken for you. And if you'll take whatever you have to drink to know this is symbolically the blood of Jesus shed for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. May you experience his peace and his joy in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.